there are places in Scripture that are so well known to us. There are places that are so well loved by us. Those verses that just roll right off the tip of our tongues without even thinking. I mean, how many times have we been in an intimate setting with other believers when someone says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And everyone says, amen, God is good. I mean, he's among us. His spirit is right here with us, which is true as God is omnipresent. I ask you this morning, is that the right way to use this passage? Should it be quoted when we are in small gatherings to encourage each other that God is in our midst, that he is in our presence? And you may be thinking, of course. Why wouldn't we use this passage in such settings, such situations? Well, the next question I would ask is, what is the context of that passage? What is going on to lead Jesus to say, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. For some of us, we may not know the context. We probably have heard this passage said so many times by itself. We have no idea what Jesus is talking about when he says this very known passage that is often quoted. So I want to just read this verse in context so we can get a glimpse of what it really means to see if it changes our perspective of this passage. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three on earth agree about anything, they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So Jesus is talking about church discipline. He is saying that when you, the church, decide when two or three are gathered in my name and you make a decision as a church about disciplining someone, He's saying there's authority behind that decision. It has Christ Jesus agreeing. He's there with you, it says. He's working in the middle of that church discipline situation that the church is facing. He is leading the decision the church is making. 
So this is actually the context of this all too familiar passage that is often misrepresented, misused in our day by many believers. Well, this morning, our passages are similar in the fact that they are very popular. They are very familiar. They are very known to many of us. But again, I must say there's a lot of confusion about what these passages mean. There's a lot of people who misinterpret what Jesus is trying to say in our passages this morning. So let's open our Bibles to John 14, 12 through 17. John 14, 12 through 17, which will be our main passages this morning. And I've entitled this message, One Helper and Three Promises. So as we begin, let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, as we dive into your word, Father, I ask that you help us to be good interpreters of what your word says. Help us not to just rip passages out of context and use them in wrong manners, Father. Help us to understand your word correctly. Use discernment. Be led by your spirit to guide us into all truth as your word says. We ask that you give us wisdom. Help us to be lovers of you, which means we will love your word as well. In Christ's name, amen. Well, John 14, 12 through 17 says this, and this is Jesus speaking again, and he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus says some astounding truths to us this morning, right? He says that believers will do works like him, but not just like him, but greater works. Greater works than what Jesus did when he was on this earth. And if that wasn't amazing enough, then Jesus goes on and says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, in my name, I will do it. But before we go into answering how these passages relate to us, how they apply to us practically, we need to look at, again, the context. We need to explore why Christ said these extraordinary truths in the first place. And to do that, we need to all go back into our time capsule a few weeks ago when we first started John chapter 14. And we have to remember that Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room. And he said this in John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus knows the disciples. Jesus knows the disciples better than they know themselves. And he recognizes they are burdened. 
They are troubled, as our passage says. And it's not that Jesus is very perceptive, even though he is very perceptive, or a good reader of people, but we know on many occasions that Jesus could supernaturally read the minds of what the people were thinking. He, could, he knew the hearts of the people around him. As scripture says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit, or the Lord weighs the heart. So he can see into the hearts of men. And here we see that Jesus looks beyond the outer appearances and sees right into the heart of his disciples. And Jesus recognizes the turmoil, the struggles, the burdens, the troubles that are rising up out of the disciples' hearts. So Jesus gives them three promises to hold on to during those troubled times, during those tumultuous times. But the good news for us is this morning is that these three promises are not just given to disciples. But we find out that these are promises that are given to us as well. Amen? And this leads to point number one. The three promises are the result of the Holy Spirit. The three promises are the result of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, And to show that the Holy Spirit is the foundation of these three promises, we have to start at the end of our section this morning first. We're going to read the last two verses of our section first. So let's start by jumping down into verse 16 and 17 of chapter 14. And this is what Jesus says. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus says again, talking to the disciples and says, when I go back to the father, which means after he is crucified, right? And and resurrected, Jesus says, I will send you the helper the Holy Spirit who will be with you when I leave. And some of us at this point may be feeling really sorry for the disciples because Jesus is leaving them for good, right? And we may think the disciples would be better off if Jesus would stay than the Holy Spirit come. I mean, they have been face to face with God in the flesh for three plus years. But we may be also thinking that it would be better for us to have Jesus in the flesh instead of having the Holy Spirit as well. I mean, if Jesus was face to face with us every day, I mean, he could give us 24-7 biblical counseling, right? I mean, he could just stop by my office, pierce into my heart and say, Terry, you got some pride, you got some selfishness, you got some fear to deal with. Repent of that, go home and make up with your wife, right? I mean, it could be that easy. And yet Jesus tells the disciples and he tells us today that it is better for him to go. As Jesus says in John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus tells the disciples that it will be to your benefit. It will be to your advantage that I go. Why? Because when I go, I will send you the Holy 
spirit. We see in the Old Testament that God dwelt in the temple. We see in Jesus' time, he dwelt among the people. But we see in the New Testament, the church era, that now God dwells with us inside of our hearts. Amen? I wonder if we praise God for the gift of the Holy Spirit this morning. If we are just overjoyed, full of thanksgiving, recognizing the Holy Spirit, God lives within those of us that are believers in Jesus Christ. I wonder if we know it is to our advantage this morning that the Holy Spirit is actively working on our behalf. Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. John 16, 13. If we are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit who has opened up our eyes to the truth and is continuing to lead us into more truth. The Holy Spirit shows us the reality of life. He reveals to us who God is. He reveals to us who we are. He convicts the world and us of sin. He allows us to be in awe of God's unfathomable grace. The Holy Spirit is called our comforter, the counselor, the advocate. And in our verses today, he is the helper. He is the spirit of truth, and he is working mightily in those of us that are children of God. And this morning, the three promises that we will talk about today are predicated. They're dependent on the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So with that being said, let's jump back up to verse 12 in our passages at the beginning. John 14, 12. And Jesus starts by saying this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So the disciples who are probably are pretty upset and worried at this moment, realizing Jesus is going to leave them as he has been their safety blanket for the last three years. And Christ says to them that they will do works like him, but not only works like him, but greater works. I wonder what they thought about such news. I mean, it was probably daunting for them to comprehend or understand how they could do greater works than the Messiah, than Christ Jesus. But I ask you this morning, what do we say about such news as well? I mean, this is a general statement to all Christians, not just the disciples, which leads to point or promise number one. Promise number one is this. We will do greater works than Christ. We will do greater works than Christ. And you may be thinking, what? I mean, how? How could I do greater works than Christ? Christ was God, and yet I am just a mere man or a mere woman. Well, the start, I think we need to understand what the works and greater works really are. I think that's a good place for us to start because many would argue that Jesus is espousing that the greater works are speaking specifically about doing miracles signs, and wonders, like Jesus did, right? He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he casted out demons, he walked on water, he fed 5,000, he was in control of the weather. But I would ask you, if this is the case, then did the disciples actually do greater miracle signs and wonders than Jesus? 
We know they did works like Christ. I mean, they healed the sick. They raised the dead on occasion. They casted out demons. But did they actually do greater works or more spectacular miracles than Christ Jesus? Did they have control over the weather like Christ? Did they raise a man to life who had been dead for four days? And I could go on, but the point is the disciples did miracles like Christ, but to say that they did miracles greater than Christ, I think would be an exaggeration. And similarly with us, are we doing greater miracles than Christ this morning? Some will argue the reason why most of us aren't doing the greater miracles is that we don't have enough faith. But I would refer back to our verse that says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me. This is a general statement to all believers in Christ. It's not a statement just to a select few who have stronger faith. Again, it's to anyone in Christ. True believers will do works and greater works. But the opposite of true is true as well, that those today that claim to be in Christ and yet don't have these works or these greater works aren't Christians. They're not believers. So let me ask us, if we have these works and greater works this morning, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So Christ says that those who believe in him will do these works because he is going back to the Father, right? But what happens when he leaves? Well, first Christ is crucified and resurrected from the dead. He becomes the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of God's people. And what's the outcome? What's the outcome? The Holy Spirit takes on the role of Christ on earth, except he now indwells believers, those that are God's people, and he draws people to Christ. He convicts the world of sin. He opens up the eyes of the blind to see Christ for who he is, and he gives us a new heart and allows us to love Christ and follow him for the very first time. That's amazing. The church becomes universal. The church reaches the ends of the earth. God's people aren't just the Jews any longer, but all who are born of the Spirit of God regardless of ethnicity. And this, we see, begins on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, where Peter is preaching, telling the Jewish people that they crucified Christ, who was the Messiah. And he says that the people were cut to the heart. And Peter told them when they were cut to the heart, they were convicted of their sin, that they've just crucified the Messiah. Peter says, repent, And then after you repent, be baptized, he says. And what was the outcome? Acts 2, 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. That sounds like a pretty good day, right? So 3,000 people became followers of Christ on that day. Now, I ask you, when did Christ get 3,000 people to truly become disciples of Christ? The answer is never. He never did. Why? 
Was Peter a better preacher than Christ? I mean, was Peter a better communicator than Christ? Was Peter more biblically astute than Christ? And of course, it's absurd that I'm saying such words. I hope I don't get struck by lightning. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. He is perfect in every way, including being the greatest preacher to ever walk the face of the earth. And yet Christ in three years didn't have near the conversions that Peter had in one day on the day of Pentecost. Many, I mean, many church growth gurus would consider Peter a success and Jesus a failure, right? But in reality, the difference was on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit began to draw people to him, to Christ. And when Christ preached, the Holy Spirit was not yet unleashed on everybody. So Christ preached to people who are blinded and controlled by sin. So the works and the greater works was the width, the ability for mere man and women to share the gospel of Christ and the Holy Spirit to allow those words to penetrate the heart of the listener and bring them to saving faith. That is amazing. And this is what we see in the book of Acts, the start of the church where the apostles do perform miracles, but the main focus is on the Holy Spirit transforming hearts and minds as the gospel is spread like wildfire as the apostles preach a crucified and risen Lord. They had power behind them. The Holy Spirit was working on the hearts as they preached Jesus alludes to the Holy Spirit when he's talking to Nicodemus and he says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. John 3, 6. So without the Holy Spirit working, people still are in their flesh. They won't be able to follow Christ. It's not possible. And it doesn't matter how good of a communicator a person is. Without the Holy Spirit drawing and transforming hearts, we can do nothing. The question is, what does it actually look like to be transformed by the Holy Spirit? What is the fruit of having the Holy Spirit working in our lives? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 16, he says this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So point number two. We are a signpost that points to Christ. Those of us that have the Holy Spirit are now signposts that point to Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit transformed life is motivated from a heart that centers on Christ. Our actions, our behaviors, our conversations, our thoughts, our hopes, our dreams, our purposes are all wrapped up now in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. John Piper says this, Jesus lived for the glory of the Father in everything he did. We are to live for the glory of Jesus and the Father in everything we do. If we are a Christian, we will do what Jesus did. Christians are defined by works that flow from their faith and points to the glory of God. The question is, does our lives point others to Christ? Does our lives really point others to Christ? I wonder this morning if our friends would say our 
actions, our conversations, our life generally points people to Christ. What about our spouse? Would they say our lives are passionate for Christ? What about our children? Would they say we are zealous for Christ? Well, let's move on in our text, and we're in John 14, verses 13 and 14. And Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, though, context is important for us to go back to. If remember, Jesus was encouraging the disciples, telling them that that what will happen to them when they leave. When he leaves, right? And he says, if you ask me anything, surely I'll do it. That's what he says. But again, this is just not to the disciples, but for all who have the Holy Spirit. And I must admit, I really love this passage because I drive an old Camry that has about 215,000 miles. And I am asking God to give me a new BMW convertible. In the name of Jesus. Can someone go check and see if it's out in the parking lot right now, please? I mean, the scripture says, whatever you ask. And later it says, anything you ask. I mean, what does whenever and anything mean? I would assume they mean anything and everything, right? And I would agree that it usually does, except it says that it has to be done in the name of Jesus. And many would say, well, yeah, that's why with whatever you're asking, you just sort of tack on in the name of Jesus at the end of it. So I would like a bigger house in the name of Jesus. I would like $50,000 in the name of Jesus. Or Lord, please give me a new job or a new air conditioning or a new spouse or new children in the name of Jesus. If you agree with the last two, you need biblical counseling. The problem is God's word says he won't answer prayers that are self-centered. We have to look at all of the Bible, not just one passage. James 4, 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James says God won't answer our prayer if we're only asking for our own benefit, for our own selfish gain. And the problem is when we pray for health, wealth, and prosperity, it often does not have anything to do with Christ, even if we tack on in the name of Jesus at the end of it. God knows what's going on in our hearts. It may not be spiritually beneficial for us to be healed of a disease. It may not be beneficial spiritually for us to get a new car. Or to help us become rich. It actually may be a detriment to our spiritual walk with Christ. So God doesn't always answer our prayers. It's similar to giving our children what they want. If my child wants something that won't be good for them, like running out in the street or touching a hot burner, we say no to those requests, right? We want to give them what is best for them. Which leads to promise number two. God answers our prayers that spiritually help us. You can guarantee this. 
God answers our prayers, that will spiritually help us. That will spiritually mature us. He answers those, and we can be confident about that. If we have issues in our marriage or we're struggling how to parent, or if we're dealing with fear or unforgiveness or depression, to name a few issues, we can ask God to help us, and we can have confidence that he will answer such requests. He will draw us to godly people. He will take us to certain passages in Scripture. He will reveal where we need to change ourselves. He will let us be plugged into a a good church that will support us through our tough times. God will answer our prayers when they help us spiritually grow. He sees beyond just our words. But the question we might need to start with is, are we praying in the first place? Are we praying to God? James says also, you have not because you ask not. Some of us aren't talking to God. We are too focused on the things of this world, so we give little prayer to God. We give little time to him. God calls us to seek him, to talk to him, and he doesn't make it optional. It's commanded, too. But again, it's commanded because it's for our own benefit, right? It's for our own benefit, Some of us may be thinking, I'm really not sure how to really pray to God. Well, I'd encourage you to first read his word, fill up with his word, and then when your mind is filled up with his word, then go to him and talk to him about what you've been reading in the word of God. We also know that the disciples asked this very same question, how to pray. And Jesus gave them a simple yet profound prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. It would be helpful to learn the Lord's Prayer as it gives us a structure to follow on how to pray. But another easy way to learn how to pray is to get a prayer partner. Ask a solid believer, someone who is mature in their faith of the same gender, to pray with you and make it a weekly time of fellowship, sweet fellowship with this dearly loved brother or sister in Christ. But this leads to point number three. We don't pray alone. Point number three is we don't pray alone. Romans 8, 26 and 27 says this. We need to hold on to this first. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit who indwells us is also interceding for us. He is going to God on our behalf. And Paul says that he is making clear what needs to be said. So when I say things and it's all mumbly and jumbly and my emotions are controlling me, I can't figure out what to say, it says the Holy Spirit is is clearing my language, my communication up with the Father, right? It's like an interpreter. That's what he's doing. I wonder if we realize that the Holy Spirit is working when we are talking to God. Prayer is between us and the Godhead. The Trinity is working together for our good and his glory when we are in prayer. How blessed are we this morning, amen? To know that God wants us to talk to him. I mean, we have the God of the universe's attention at any moment. He actually wants to hear from us. Sometimes our own spouses don't want to hear from us, but God does. 
That should blow our minds considering the attention, the care, the love that God has for us. And this leads to the final promise. Promise number three. Promise number three says we can love God. We can love God. The question is, do we actually love God this morning? I mean, God has shown us such love, such care, such patience with us. But do we actually love him back? And you may be thinking, I think so. I think I do. Or maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm not really sure. How do I know? I mean, you can't really measure your love for God, can you? Well, John 14, 15, our final passage this morning, says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So Christ says, it is very clear if we love God or not. So it's not that we should do good works, or we might do good works, but the person who has the Holy Spirit, who loves God, will be full of good works, the Bible says. So the person that loves God reveals their love in how they live their life. That's what it's saying. It's not, let me find love by obeying God's commands, but following God is a result of how I already love him. Does that make sense? Maybe not. Let me say it a different way here. Let me ask a question. What leads a person to obey God's commands from our passage? The answer is love. The reason why we obey his commandments is because we already do love him. So I don't obey his commands to start loving God, but I obey his commands because I already do love God. Which leads to point number four. Obedience is the fruit of our love for God. Point number four says obedience is the fruit of our love for God. Obedience is the fruit and love would then be the root. So when we obey God, we are just revealing the love we already have for God inside of us. Obeying God does not create that love. This verse is saying it is a proof of the love that we already have in us. So the question is, where does this love for God come from? Where does this love for God come from? Well, Galatians 5, 22, a very, a very popular, familiar verse says this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So Paul says love comes from the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of his work in the believer's heart. The question is, are we growing in this love this morning? This love the Holy Spirit gives allows us to put self aside and love others because of our great love for Christ. Well, this morning I want to do something a little different. I want to end by reading Paul's prayer as he writes to those who have the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to believers at the church of Ephesus. And he says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray, church, that this be our prayer, that we be empowered by the Spirit, that we may act in faith, growing deeper in our love, growing wider in our love for God, for Christ, but also that we continue to grow in God's love for us. That his love becomes more evident to us. That his love for us becomes more real to us. That his love deepens in our hearts as well. Well, Paul ends this glorious prayer by saying this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And the church would say, amen.